this is No Ordinary Wednesday, an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Jeremy Maggs. In the previous episode, we spoke about why inflation matters to markets. And last week, we had the dubious privilege of seeing those dynamics in action. No sooner had the U.S. Federal Reserve signaled its intent to raise interest rates on inflation concerns than U.S. markets fell sharply in what's now being labelled a mini taper tantrum. And this week, the U.S. dollar gave up some of its gains while bond yields rose. We ask Obakang Pitse, Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, what is driving these dynamics specifically and why U.S. bond yields haven't responded quite as one might expect. Then, in our second segment, with international tourism all but halted and further restrictions on economic activity in this third wave of COVID-19 infections, the current surge in global commodity prices is a real godsend for South Africa's terms of trade. I'll be in conversation with Campbell Parry, Global Resources Analyst at Investec Wealth and Investment, about what is behind the price boom, the positives, the negatives and the outlook, both immediate and in the longer term. And with winter taking hold amidst fresh bouts of load shedding, it's no wonder that today's burning question concerns President Ramaphosa's recent announcement that private companies can now generate their own power up to 100 megawatts. We'll ask Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking Power and Infrastructure Finance Senior Consultant Ziad Sarang how soon is this likely to make a tangible difference to our vexing and troubling power shortages. But first, on No Ordinary Wednesday, let me introduce Obokang Pitse, Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. Obakeng, a very warm welcome to you. Before we talk about what dr- is driving U.S. inflation, come on, man, you've got to help me here. What's a taper tantrum? Taper tantrum is something that happened in the markets a while ago when the U.S. Fed was busy with a quantitative easing, which is purchases of assets into the market. When it signaled to the market that its intention was to scale back on these purchases, there was a wide-scale panic in the market and price volatility which then ensued, which was a tantrum. So that's basically where the taper tantrum term was coined. And there's a tantrum by the market and pricing price volatility went through the roof because the market was caught off guard. So there's a bit of a shock in the market. And that's the reason where this taper tantrum term came from. So conceivably, you could have a temper tantrum straight after a taper tantrum. You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> but, but what I am going to ask you, Abakane, just to get serious, currently, what, what is driving U.S. inflation? So, Jeremy, I think there's a couple of factors that are currently uh, contributing to the higher-than-expected U.S. inflation figure. I think a big one of that is that the reopening of the U.S. economy. I think as it stands, the U.S. has probably vaccinated about 320 million of its citizens, which has then resulted in a sort of a normalization of economy and economic activity. Now, you couple that with probably about 12 months ago, we were probably in, in some stage of a very, very severe lockdown, both in the U.S. and the economy. You've got a lot of pent-up demand that is now 
itself surfaced due to this opening of this economy. Coupled with that, you've also got some supply-side constraints. And what you see is out demand basically outstripping supply, and you see a lot of that coming through in the price. And I think another thing to consider into with the U.S. inflation story is that the base effect on a year-on-year basis is also coming through in that inflation print. Given that we're in a severe lockdown a year or so ago, the year-on-year price movement is a lot higher. So how has the bond market responded then? Jeremy, typically what would happen is that in a high inflationary environment, the expectation from the market is that interest rates should also increase and that should follow suit. Now, typically what would happen is that with a fixed rate bond, when interest rates are expected to increase, the allure or the return of that does diminish somewhat. And then you have some bond selling off, which will then, with the bond selling off, is that you have the pricing of the bond decreasing, but you have the yield increasing. So you typically expect the yields to increase in a high inflationary environment, pursuant to the fact that interest rates are also expected to increase, which is not what's happening currently in the U.S. And I think a big component of that is the Fed. Now, the Fed has said there is a uptick or a spike in U.S. inflation. Their term or their view is that this will be temporary in nature and they don't foresee themselves hiking interest rates, which is the normal expectation of the market up until 2023. And that's why you're seeing bond yields being anchored and not increasing, which is what we expect to happen. So let me just get this clear. Your view at the moment is that there would be a a hold as far as any action is concerned from the Fed. Definitely, I think so. I do think that the inflation prints have somewhat caught the Fed off guard. That was Some of it was largely expected due to the base effects and the lags, but I think over the past few prints, it's always been higher than expectation. And so if you listen to some of the rhetoric from the last meeting that the Fed had, which was um, a week or so ago, it is growing as a concern. You know, I think there's more voices within the Fed membership that are saying this might be a lot longer than what we expected it being temporary in nature and the Fed may be forced to move before its 2023 target which has been clearly signaling to the market you know I think seven of the 18 members have already indicated that they expect interest rates to pick up from next year already. Let's uh, take a slightly wider view it seems to me that all roads eventually end up with the pandemic and the vaccine rollout. We do know, Obakeng, that there have been massive disruptions in supply chains globally. What impact then has that had on the broader inflation picture? So definitely, I think we are still in the midst of a pandemic. And if you look around, most countries are in the second or third wave, with some countries even probably potentially talking about a fourth wave. Now, what that does is that the different countries' responses put them in different levels of lockdown, which impacts global trade. And due to the fact that global trade is disrupted from a supply side point of view, given that other economies are at a more advanced stage, you will have some supply side disruption. And I do think that this will persist longer than what is expected. You know, if you think of what the Fed is saying and they're signaling their expectation is that inflation would moderate towards the end of next year. If the vaccine rollout doesn't occur as intended, meaning that the pace of rollout is slower, that will continue to then hamper global trade and the supply side constraints will continue, meaning that there is a potential for inflation to persist a lot longer than what is expected. But it's all about learning to live with unpredictability. 100%, Jeremy. Look, I think 
anybody with a magic eight ball would be a millionaire unless you either that or Bitcoin. But, you know, it is something that we're having to learn to live with and a lot of volatility and an unpredictability in the market. And that's what's facing a lot of investors right now and trying to navigate that environment, given the little information that's in the market and trying to make sense of it from an investor point of view. I want to put a final question to you then. Let's uh, bring it back to this hemisphere. How concerned should South African investors be about the scenario that you've painted? How should they be absorbing, digesting and analyzing this? So the U.S. inflation picture right now from a South African investor perspective is less of a concern. Look, Coming back to South Africa, we do have our own inflation concerns. You know, our inflation is ticking up, but as 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 expected from the Saab, I mean, if you listen to the Saab, they expect inflation to average about four and a half percent, which is the mid range of their three to three to six percent um, target band, which is comfortable. They even expect that it could touch five percent towards the end of the year. Having said that, though, I don't think that the U.S. inflation story is a concern so much because if you think about it. Due to the fact that the Fed is not going to rise interest rates, it still means that the monetary policy will be accommodative and a lot of that excess cash will find its way to South African shores. Given that from a real yield perspective and from an EM play, we are still quite attractive. Now, should that stance change and we see some capital flows or a negative risk off sentiment, there is risk that some of these capital flows that have found its way to the South African shores might leave and that will lead to negative pricing actions from local asset price point of view. And that's where we are going to leave it. Thanks for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. Obakang Pitse, Head of Sales and Structuring at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. In a moment, we'll unpack surging commodity prices with global resources analyst at Investec Wealth and Investment, Campbell Parry. But before we do that, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday will be dropping every fortnight. To make sure you get it, subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. And now we talk to Campbell Parry, Global Resources Analyst at Investec Wealth and Investment, on what is driving the price boom in commodities. As economies and industries recover from the devastating effects of COVID-19, there's high demand for commodities, anything from oil, steel, in consumer goods, to copper, in gadgets. The list goes on and on. Campbell, a very warm welcome. Everything seems to be at a record high right now. So maybe the good starting point is, how did we get there? Well, I think that the current pricing environment has demand and supply components, as you know, and we've seen a very, very strong cyclical recovery in metals, which has been demand-led, and in energy, which has both demand and supply factors, I suppose. But remember, we've just come out of this pandemic, and that marked a, a very, very sharp correction in in, in, in commodity consumption and the bounce back really has just been equally extreme and very, very broad based. I think people are excited to get out of COVID. They're excited to drive. They're excited to fly. They're excited to consume and, you know, confidence levels are high. There's lots of money sloshing around, as you know, uh, for a wide variety of consumer goods for which stocks are quite low and supply chains are a little stuck still. And if you add to all of that, the fact that China has still been very accommodative in terms of stimulus, and particularly in 2020 when things were so tough, 
uh, and that you know they were the level of stimulus in China was unprecedented, and that's had a lingering effect in 2021. So, you know, with China consuming between 40 and 70 percent of of commodities, depending which commodity you look at, and 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 looking at the robust industrial activity, steel production. And coupled with a, with I think with a strong national desire to fill their strategic inventories of all commodities, from wheat to iron ore and copper, you know, all of that has been very supportive for the commodity basket. And at the same time, on the supply side, and this is the final thing, um, that's been very slow to respond, uh, partly because those supply chains are stuck, as I mentioned, but also because uh, the companies haven't been keen to invest in new production. Is this a sustainable bounce back? What would the red flags be? Do you think? Well, we've already seen a little bit of a correction in something like, let's say, copper. And it's mostly due to a strong dollar and some uncertainty about the pace and timing of U.S. interest rate increases. So, And then, you know, China, I think, is always unpredictable. And because of an extreme amount of speculative activity, as they call it, on the Shanghai Futures Exchange, they've acted to try and constrain that, coupled with trying to release strategic inventories just to to soften the price a little bit, uh, basically fearing inflationary impacts of higher commodity prices. So so that's been something that's come up of late. What sort of local prism should we be looking at this through, given that we are still a couple of weeks off the peak of a third wave in South Africa? You talk about the rest of the world starting to flex its muscles and showing a little bit more enthusiasm. Um, Campbell, it's a very different picture in this neck of the woods. Yeah, well, I, I think what's been very interesting, and you know where the RAND is at, I think that's been partly due to the fact that our terms of trade have looked so good. Look at the look at the price of the PGM basket, a big export commodity. Look at the price of gold. Look at the price of iron ore. You know, upwards of two hundred and twenty dollars a ton at one point, and even more for higher grade material. And that's been wonderful for our terms of trade. So for our country, this has been good. I think over the short and medium term, it's going to continue to be good. Um, so despite COVID, I think the underlying economy is going to derive a, an immense benefit from what we're seeing at the moment. And the next six to 12 months, what will be the driving impetus there, do you think? The global economy is recovering. Global growth estimates continue to be revised higher. That's very metals intensive in terms of consumption. And allied to still, you know, Chinese Chinese stimulus has come off the boil a little bit, but not materially so. And it's still at relatively high absolute levels. So that's going to continue to be an underpin. China has a mandate to build its strategic inventories. So the fact that it's decided to sell from those inventories, we believe, is quite short term. And, and, and it will it will start up again in, 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 as it always has done. Um, so it's really just related to um, a continued broad-based cyclical recovery uh, around the world. And just finally, if we take a longer-term outlook, commodities, I would suggest, are closely linked to energy transition. A transition to cleaner energy is a dictum that is driving uh, the world over. Uh, It would be commodity-intensive. You have already referenced supply meeting demand, but against that backdrop, um, what's your assessment? Well, that's where we jump on the whole super cycle. You know, we're part of the super cycle camp then because, you know, super cycles, which you would maybe define as 
at least 10 years long. And I really think that the global push to decarbonize is a very catalyst for the creation of such a cycle. And I think here's why. You know, it, it, the, most of the world is pledging net zero emissions by certain, by, by differing times. And I think it's going to require the biggest collective action in, in human history, uh, an astonishing transformation of the global economy, as you know, Jeremy, and a, almost a complete retooling of global energy infrastructure. And, and in order to achieve those goals, you have to decarbonize power supply, you know, which requires you to quadruple wind and solar by 2030, for example. You have to electrify energy use, so something like 15 times the number of electric vehicles on the roads by 2030. And most importantly, and this might be the most difficult thing, is you have to, as a society, change the way you live, where we, where we live and how we get around. And so, in other words, the energy intensity of, of the world economy needs, needs to fall by, we, we reckon, around 5% per year in order to meet these goals. Now, how do we do this? Because they, they're very, very lofty goals. Well, we do it with metals. You know, an electric vehicle requires five times the amount of metals and materials that a normal car does. Renewable energies such as wind and solar are two to four times as metals intensive. And so if you assume that by 2030 there's something like 200 million electric vehicles on the road and renewables account for maybe 30% of the energy mix, you know, we, we think it's going to require massive increases in the supply of metals. And there's differing numbers out there, but it's, you know, three times the amount of copper and zinc, five times the amount of rare earths, six times the amount of nickel and I read somewhere eight times the amount of cobalt and it's just you know the trouble with that of course is that the supply of of metals is suffers from some severe structural constraints they are geographically concentrated and uh, in often in areas where there's political and logistical difficulties um, and if you have a look at much of the world's mineral resource today we only have 50 years of supply left and much of it is in, in severe grade decline, like take copper and, mm. and iron ore and oil. And finally, and most importantly, the precedent is just not good because it takes 10 to 15 years to develop a new mine. And if you think about management of companies and shareholders, they're a lot more reticent about committing capital to greenfields development these days. So, so, so simply put, so kind of a long answer to your question, I just think simply put, the supply of metal commodities is just not ready to support an accelerated energy transition. A lot needs to be done by governments working together, which seems a very tall order, and it ultimately is going to require higher prices anyway. So we're very bullish on the longer-term outlook for pricing. Campbell Parry, Global Resources Analyst at Investec Wealth and Investment. Thank you very much. Now, as global demand for commodities surges, we're starting to see cracks in the global supply chain for these and other inputs and products. This is a critical issue that we're going to be discussing in some detail in our next episode of No Ordinary Wednesday with Dennis Hobson, Logistics, Operations and Pricing Analyst, Investec for Business. As we come to the end of this podcast, it's now time to tackle our burning question. And with the recent announcement that private companies will be able to start producing their own power, we ask today, how important a development is this? And to answer that today, our expert is Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking Power and Infrastructure Finance Senior Consultant, Ziad Sarang. Ziad, a very warm welcome to you. And first up, I guess, is what sort of difference is this going to make to the power crisis in the country? Hi, Jeremy. Yes, uh, not before two years. Um, I know you wanted to hear something shorter, but uh, the reality is the process of 
putting power onto a grid uh, is quite regulated. There may be a few projects that, that will come in stream before that, uh, but you will not going to see a major difference before two years, uh, in my opinion. But obviously a development that is to be welcomed. Oh, for sure. We take all the good news that we can get. And this is good news. You know, it removes one of the regulatory hurdles to putting on uh, embedded power or private power onto the grid. Uh, that is significant. Uh, we should not underplay that. It is something as part of Operation Wulunglela, which the presidency has put forward in order to remove uh, the hurdles to infrastructure and, and provide growth. So we take this good news. Absolutely. What's even more of a surprise is that the initial threshold the private sector asked for was for 50 megawatts. Um, so, you know, previously it was one megawatts. Uh, we asked for 50 megawatts and we got 100 megawatts. So we'll take it. It's an infrastructure debate, uh, Ziad, but it's also a sentiment debate as well. Uh, this is going to send out perhaps uh, a lot of wave of goodwill long before that two years that you refer to is up. Yes, and this is something that is important. Uh, you know, this is the momentum that we were looking for and probably the start of that momentum. This type of uh, announcement, you know, during the consultation phase for this embedded power cap to be lifted, our Minister of Energy said it would be increased to 10 megawatts. With the presidency coming out and saying, you know, it's 100 megawatts. This is that large, impactful uh, long-lasting type of unblocking of regulation that we're looking for. And for that, it looks like it's a major shift in the narrative. And we look mm -hmm. to see more of these type of initiatives uh, being unblocked so that we can put on more projects you know, out there and, and involve the private sector. All right, Zia, that's all very well and good that private companies will be producing their own electricity. But the question is, is this going to have the effect of privatizing the supply of what should ostensibly be a public service. If that's the case, what is the implication down the line? Uh, it's actually quite the contrary, uh, Jeremy. The reason being, if you take the position that this should only be a public service, what you're essentially saying is that ESCOM is the only generator of power. I don't think you want that. What this is, is true public-private partnership, where you've got private sector skills and resources being used to generate efficient energy. And from that perspective, we all benefit. Independent power producers are the world over being proven and provides the way to bring in power at a lower cost than what you've got uh, typical utilities have been doing. Ziad Sarang, thank you for answering this week's burning question. And that's another episode of No Ordinary Wednesday. To hear more on renewable energy in South Africa, watch out for Investec Focus Talk podcasts with Investec's Ziad Sarang, who I've just been talking to, and co-founder of the Pele Energy Group, Fumani Tembi, as they discuss whether the urgent need for renewable energy solutions is really the impetus that South Africa needs to get serious about addressing the infrastructure deficit. It promises, I tell you, to be an insightful discussion. Also time for you to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio. If you haven't already, it's the one with the South African flag. All to make sure that you don't miss out on this and other future broadcasts. I'm Jeremy Maggs. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.